I was speaking to someone in a different church several years ago and they were saying that in their denomination they have a minister who's particularly gifted at going into churches where there have been disputes and divisions. Uh, say there's been a, a church where there's been infighting and perhaps people have left. He'll go in as minister for a few years to try and restore peace. His aim is to stop the congregation fighting among themselves and get them to move forward together. And in a sense, it's, it's good that there's someone uh, with those skills that churches can call upon. But it is, of course, a tragedy that things can ever get to that stage. Because by the time he comes to a church, uh, people have been hurt relationships have been ruined and many uh, have no doubt already left Uh, and what makes it particularly tragic is how often Christians are commanded to live at peace with one another Uh, we we read we read it there the, the last verse we read in Mark chapter 9 have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another When the Lord Jesus told his followers what the blessed life looked like, he said it involved being peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so we will lose much of God's blessing in this life if we're not committed to being peacemakers. If we're not being peacemakers, there is a blessing we are missing out on. And of all the the one another commands in the New Testament that we looked at together uh, probably five or six years ago now, uh, the second most frequent one another command is for Christians to be at peace with one another. In fact, the the only one another command that that appears more often is love one another. And being at peace with one another is simply part of loving one another. Uh, The fundamental one another command is to love one another. uh, And the others are are simply applying that to different situations. Uh, And so peace is love expressing itself when there's potential for conflict. The question of course, isn't will disagreements arise? That much is certain. Sometimes people think if only we could go back to the early church where everything was perfect, where people always got on. But that's just not how it was. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi, as we saw this morning, he calls out those two ladies who were obviously at loggerheads with each other and tells them to agree in the Lord. Even Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement. And of course Jesus' disciples were were falling out with each other even when he was still with them as we read. Uh, Also in Mark 9 they were arguing about who is the greatest. So the question isn't whether disagreements will arise. The question isn't where can I find a church where everybody gets on all the time. But the question is, how will we handle the disagreements that will inevitably arise? Because how does God want us to handle them? Well, we quoted a few times now Jesus' words there in Mark 9, verse 50. Be at peace with one another. 
Or we could go to Romans 14, 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Romans 12, 16. They live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 5. The Apostle Paul prays. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to be in agreement with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says, Be at peace among yourselves. And in Ephesians 4.2, we're told to bear with one another in love. Different words are used. Peace, harmony, agreement. But the goal is the same. It's a way as Christians, as congregations, and as part of the wider body of Christ, would have peace and unity with one another. Just before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And he prayed for those who would come after them. They were some of the last words that he spoke on earth. And what did he pray for, for for them and for us? He prayed, Father, I ask that they may all be one. Of all the things that Jesus could have chosen to pray for, for future generations of his people, On his last night on earth, he prayed for our unity. And so if Jesus saw our peace and unity with other Christians as of utmost importance, what about us? How high up our priority lists is it? This morning we considered Jesus' words, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we thought about three questions. What does a peacemaker look like? Where should we be peacemakers? And why are peacemakers called sons of God? And we finished with an illustration based around Ephesians 4.3. Ephesians 4.3 says we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And the illustration was of a man out collecting firewood. He finds a good supply of sticks, but they're all different shapes and sizes. And so he ties them together with a bit of twine and easily carries them home. And so it is in the church. We are a varied bunch. How will Christ carry us home? He ties us together with a bond of peace. Cut that bond and you cut the cord that Christ himself has tied. So, going on from that then tonight, practically speaking, how can we do our bit to make sure that the cord stays tied? How can we do our bit to make sure that the cord stays tied? We want to think about that question under two headings this evening. Uh, The first one is a wee bit longer, is realise that Satan loves it when Christians aren't at peace with one another. Realise Satan loves it when Christians aren't at peace with one another. One of the most well-known words in the Old Testament is the word shalom. It means peace. It occurs nearly 250 times. And that tells us that peace is something that God sees as very important. And the New Testament is no different After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples when they're hiding in a locked room and says, Peace be with you. 
Then he shows him his hands inside and says it again. A week later on the next Sunday, Jesus appears to them again and says the same thing. Peace be with you. Again and again in the New Testament when Paul is writing to churches, whether in Rome or in Philippi or Corinth, he says, may the God of peace be with you. And if we know this God of peace, it will be seen in our lives in three different ways. Firstly, it will be seen in the peace that we have with God. Romans chapter 5 begins, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's such an amazing thing. Because none of us can be into this world at peace with God. Even if we live fairly decent lives, that peace that humanity had with God was lost the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And so we will live and die under God's curse unless we put our trust in the Lord Jesus and experience the peace with God that he brings. Outside of Jesus Christ and faith in him, there is no peace with God. And we could call that first sense of peace an objective peace. No matter how anxious we are, no matter how much it seems that our world is crashing down on us, no matter how much we might even doubt whether we have peace with God, we do have peace with God and no one or nothing can take that from us. So there's an objective peace the Bible talks about, the peace we have with God. The second type of peace in the Bible we could call subjective peace. And that's peace as in the opposite of anxiety. Many, many of God's people struggle with anxiety, worry and so on. And yet God offers us peace from that. That's the sort of peace Philippians 4 is talking about and boys and girls this would be a really good verse for you to learn early in life uh, particularly if you're anxious a lot Uh, are any of you boys and girls anxious about things well here's the verse do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then rather than being anxious we can tell God what we're worried about and let him take that anxiety from us. And so we have the peace with God that someone has the the moment they become a Christian. We have peace within our hearts that stops us panicking and fretting. But sometimes we have that peace and other times we don't. It's always available to us. But sometimes we don't deal well with the things that can cause us anxiety. We don't take them to God but we try and deal with them ourselves. And as a result, we don't always know this peace. But there's also a third kind of peace 
that flows from or should flow from knowing the God of peace. As well as the, the vertical peace that we have with God and the inward peace that we can experience over the things that could worry us. There's also a horizontal peace Peace with our fellow man and particularly with our fellow Christians. And that's the peace we're particularly thinking about tonight. But Satan, our great enemy, wants to stop us having peace in all three of these areas. First of all, he wants to stop us having peace with God. Which he can only do before we become Christians. And the way he usually does that is by convincing people they are already at peace with God. That they're not really sinners and God isn't really angry with them. And he'll accept them in the end anyway. So Satan wants to to stop people having peace with God. He wants to stop them becoming Christians But if he fails in that, then he attacks the next two kinds of peace. He wants to take away the peace within our hearts that comes from being a Christian. Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he does try to take away your enjoyment of your salvation. He can't take away your salvation, but he does try to take away your enjoyment of your salvation. And the third way that Satan opposes peace is by trying to disrupt the peace we have with fellow believers. Instead of us being at peace with one another, Satan has his own one another desire that he wants us to obey. Uh, We find that in Galatians 5.15 where we're told that the alternative to loving one another is biting and devouring one another. Have you thought about that? Satan wants us to bite and devour one another. And if we do, we're doing exactly what he wants. Satan is desperate to break this bond of unity tied around the the different sized sticks that we are. So how can we make sure he doesn't get his way? Well, we need to be prepared for what he'll try to do. We need to know our enemy. Uh, God's word says that we are not ignorant of his strategies. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's a good book to read if you want to know your enemy and be prepared for his strategies. And in that book, Brooks says that when Christians end up biting and devouring one another, it doesn't just happen, but rather it comes at the end of one of Satan's master strategies aimed at destroying Christians. He says that Satan starts by working to get believers to be strange with one another. Uh, And he doesn't mean by that that we will do strange things, but but that we would be distant and standoffish. He, He wants to turn the temperature down on the warmth of relationship that was once there. Or to make sure that the relationship never gets past the superficial 
Satan is happy when we don't cultivate relationships in the church, uh, and particularly with, with people who we wouldn't otherwise have, have much in common with. He, he wants us to be strange, to be distant with one another. And Satan's next step, Brooke says, is to divide us, to, to put us into different groups so that people start to take sides. And then the next step, which follows on quite easily, is to make each group bitter and jealous against the other, uh, which involves rehashing things that have been done in the past. It involves questioning the motives of people on the other side. Uh, and the divide grows and grows to become much bigger than the original issue. And then before you know it, we're at the stage of biting and devouring one another. So that is Satan's strategy. But even to know it is to be warned against it. Remember that his great goal is to divide Christians. And so when Christians are at each other's throats, we can be sure that he's having a field day and that ultimately he's behind it. So how can we fight him? Brooks lists in his book 12 remedies against this strategy of Satan. I'll not go through all 12, but here are three. Three remedies against this strategy of Satan, which will end in us biting and devouring one another if we don't fight it. And the first remedy is that we should focus more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. We should focus more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. And so if someone else in the church does something that, that gets on our wick a bit or, or does our head in, don't focus on that, but focus on the, the gifts and graces that God has given them. But so often we are good at doing the opposite it's like we use a magnifying glass to, to focus on the quirks and flaws of other christians the book of proverbs says that it is our glory to overlook an offense but how much do we know of that glory because far from overlooking offenses we can often magnify them and yet when it comes to the evidence of God's grace in someone's life, it's like we have a telescope turned around the wrong, the wrong way so that, so that the evidence of God's grace in their life looks so small to us. But instead we should focus more on one another's graces than upon our weaknesses and infirmities. We do have a choice as to what to focus on. We all have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, which are we going to focus on? So that's remedy number one. Brooks' second remedy is to remember that love and union make most for our own safety and security. Uh, that love and union make more for our own safety and security. A king had 80 sons. When he was ready to die, he commanded that a bundle of arrows be tied up tightly and given to his sons to break. They all tried to break the bundle, but they couldn't. None of the eighty could break it. He then got them to cut the, the band that was tying them together, 
And of course, they, they could easily break the individual arrows. And the king pushed home the lesson. My sons, as long as you keep together, you will be invincible. But if the band of union be broke between you, you will easily be broken in pieces. Satan wants us to forget that we're part of a body. Uh, I quoted Colossians 3.15 this morning. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that one of God's aims is that there should be no division in the body. So the second remedy. Remember that love and union makes for your own safety and security. And remember you're part of a body. And the third remedy, just very briefly, is remember that God delights to be called the God of peace. Christ delights to be called the Prince of Peace. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of peace. How can we say we know the God of peace if we're not pursuing peace with one another? How can we claim that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives if we're content to be at odds with our fellow believers? So that's our first point tonight. Realise that that Satan loves it when Christians aren't at peace with one another. Uh, Be wise to his strategies uh, and take steps to do the opposite. But secondly, and a bit more briefly, realise that we're going to have to bear with one another. Realise that we're going to have to bear with one another. Peace, harmony, unity, they sound great. Uh, they're, They're not the sort of thing that anyone is going to argue against. But are those the sort of things that churches are known for? If you mention church to somebody, are they likely to say, well, I disagree with them, but those churches sure are groups of people who live in harmony with one another. Sadly, that's often not the case. If you mention church to someone, they're more likely to say, well, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. that They're likely to know of churches where there's been infighting and where one group is split away from the other. But why is that the case? The root cause, of course, is sin in one party or the other or both. But why does it often seem that it only needs a spark to set things off? Why are churches places where people are so ready to disagree well, well, we've already spoken about uh, the, the, the strategies of Satan uh, and he wants churches to be uh, places where, where people disagree. Uh, but, but why can it seem sometimes, are there other reasons why it can seem sometimes that the churches are, are like the dry grass that's all around us at the minute and it only takes a spark? Well, think for a moment about what church is. It's a group of people who, humanly speaking, may have very little in common. If it wasn't for the good news of Jesus Christ, many of us would probably never have met each other. We wouldn't have had much in common to talk about. We're from different backgrounds, we've had different upbringings, we're interested in different things, and yet the gospel has brought us together. And that is wonderful. It's a picture of the true unity that Jesus brings. 
but it still means we're a very diverse group. We have different personalities. We approach issues in different ways. We respond differently to the same events. And those, those aren't weaknesses. Those are positive things. Uh, the, the cults want people to be all the same. Uh, to think the same about every single issue. But in the church there's room for diversity. Imagine you went to a town where every single house was exactly the same. They were identical on the outside and on the inside. They had exactly the same layout, exactly the same furniture, uh, where everybody dressed exactly the same way. Well, you probably wouldn't want to spend much time in a town like that. And thankfully, that's not what the church is like. But because the church is diverse, that means there are more opportunities for tension. And so in order for us to be at peace with one another, we're going to need to put another biblical command into practice. That's the command to bear with one another. It's found in Ephesians 4 verse 2, bearing with one another in love. Another translation has putting up with one another. In a relationship if you love someone, there are certain things that they do which frustrate you and yet you'll need to bite your tongue about for the sake of the relationship. And it's the same in the church. So many arguments and divisions in the church could be avoided if God's people would just take this command seriously to bear with one another. Other Christians will sometimes unintentionally say things that you could take offence at. God says bear with them in love. Other Christians will frustrate you in how you approach situations. God says put up with them in love. Other Christians will, will fail to understand what you and the church are trying to achieve. And God says don't throw your hands up in frustration but bear with them. They'll blunder into situations and undo some of the good work that you've done. But God says be patient with them. Yes, if someone is consistently doing things that are unhelpful or undermining uh, things that the church is trying to do, uh, you or someone else can speak to them. But often this is about people who, who aren't doing anything that's that's clearly wrong that we can't go to them and, and say well this verse here says that what you're doing is sinful but it's just something that frustrates us and so we must bear with them that is an important thing to remember by the way just because someone in the church does something that annoys us it doesn't mean that it's sinful and there's actually a command about that in Romans 14 let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That is, when it comes to things that the Bible gives us freedom over, we have no right to judge other people because they don't do what we think they should think and do. And of course, as we, as we talk about our need to bear with others, remember that there are times that people will be called to bear with us. And even if we can't imagine that being the case, think how patient God has been with us. Think how patient God still is with you. And reflect some of that patience in how you interact with your fellow Christians.
So the next time you feel yourself getting frustrated with someone in church, the next time you think, just wait till I tell them what they've done to me, realize that that's actually an opportunity to fulfill one of God's commands. It's an opportunity to nip the frustration you feel in the bud and bear with your brother or sister in love. This command to bear with one another is one that you can't actually put into practice until a fellow Christian frustrates or annoys you. So when they do, the question is, how will you react? Living at peace with a diverse group of people, it doesn't come naturally. But it's something the Bible has a lot to say about. And as we saw this morning, this isn't just about us. It's not just, oh, it would be be lovely if, if we could all just get on. But it's about the glory of Jesus and his reputation in the world. Being peacemakers, living at peace with one another, bearing with one another, ignoring offences. These things aren't easy. But Jesus prayed for our unity. And then he went to the cross to break down the dividing wall of hostility. And he's given the Holy Spirit in order that this unity that he prayed and died for might become a reality in our lives. So will we value peace among Christians as Jesus values it? The world is watching and the reputation of the gospel is at stake. Amen. Well, let's sing in closing from Psalm 34. Psalm number 34. And we'll sing uh, from verse 5 through to verse 9, starting on page 63. Psalm 34. 5 to 10, 5 to, five to 10, uh, starting on page 63. And uh, notice particularly verse 8, Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace, pursue it still. Uh, so if you, if you pursue some, someone, if, if someone is running down the road and, and, and a, a policeman is, is pursuing them, they're, they're not just having a little saunter along. They are, they are running full pelt behind them. And so we are to, to seek peace. We are to pursue it. Uh, so Psalm 34 from 5 through to 10. Uh, tune is number tune 185. Tune 185, Psalm 34, 5 to 10. If you're able, we'll stand to sing.